Today on Peace Talks Radio, our series co-founder Suzanne Kreider comes to terms with her own sudden disability. And so I stood up and I could not walk. And I just said, oh no, this cannot be happening. No, I cannot be having a stroke. Suzanne's own story and ideas about making peace with disability. And also, I want to know, how can disabled and non-disabled people make better peace? How can they get along? And conversation with others dealing with their own disabilities. And certainly as a 19-year-old, I had a pretty Pollyanna view. I just thought, oh, people really don't mean what they're saying, or they don't really mean what they're doing. So I kept forgiving them, which isn't a bad trait, but the harmful side is it took me a long time to stand up for myself. Making Peace with Disability, today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We put the spotlight on peacemakers throughout history and today, whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm producer Paul Ingalls, and some of you will know that in 2002, Suzanne Kreider and I co-founded this program. Suzanne was the original host, and then she shared co-hosting duties for many years with Carol Boss and myself. Welcome to Peace Talks, making peace with ourselves since 9-11. I'm Suzanne Kreider, speaking to you from an auditorium on the campus of the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. An audience has gathered here to explore the mystery. Our show is about making peace. What do you expect to learn or take away about peacemaking from the gathering? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, Peace really is a choice. I mean, it's a choice we make every single day in every interaction. Yeah, and it's really tricky, I think, as a customer in that kind of situation, not to feel self-righteous. So what are your recommendations to folks to stay calm when they do end up being in the right and not taking it out on somebody else? That can be tricky, and you're right. I think we do revert oftentimes to the self-righteousness. From May of 2012 through this program, though, you haven't heard much from Suzanne. And there's a reason for that. Suzanne is here with me in the studios to host her first show since then. So welcome back, Suzanne. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Early in May 2012, something happened that forced your hiatus. You were in your apartment in Washington, D.C. Yes. So tell us what went down that night. Well, I had gone shopping that day. I had been in Williamsburg, Virginia. And so I drove back. After shopping, I shopped a little bit more in D.C. I took my luggage and all my shopping bags back into my apartment, and I had a little headache. Very unusual for me because I rarely get headaches. So I thought, well, you need to eat. So I had something to eat, and it did not go away. And I got really concerned. I thought, what is going on? All of a sudden, I tried to talk out loud to myself, and I sounded funny. So I called a friend of mine, and I said, this is Suzanne Kreider. And she said, I don't know what you just said. Go to an emergency room. Mm. Well, that freaked me out. And so I stood up and I could not walk. 
And I just said, oh, no, this cannot be happening. No, I cannot be having a stroke because it seemed like stroke symptoms. I was familiar with strokes Mm -hmm. because my dad had one when he was 70. Mm -hmm. So I walked over walking, kind of holding on to stuff to the wall where the door to my apartment opens and I knocked on the door of the guy next door to me, Mm -hmm. Polly. I was so glad because I knew he was home. I had heard him come home. He came to the door in his underwear. And I said to him, Polly, I'm having a stroke. Can you please take me to an emergency room? He was so funny. If you can see a guy who is about 30, he's six foot five, he weighs 250 pounds, he is a bartender, and he looks at me and, and laughs and says, Suzanne, I'm drunk. And I have no clothes on. (laughs) And it was the perfect humor I needed. I said, Polly, I'm having a stroke here. (laughs) And he said, I'll be back in a second. He slammed the door on me. I'm holding on to the wall because I'm freaked out. I could, I guess, have called an ambulance, but I didn't know what to do. So I went in my apartment and I got my phone, my keys, my cards, a little money, all I had. I came back out and he was there and he said, Suzanne, I'm still drunk, but I have clothes on now. Come on, we're going. And he puts his arm around me and he walks me down the hall to the elevator. And as he's taking me, he is calling on his phone an ambulance and telling them what I told him. I never lost consciousness. Mm -hmm. I'm conscious in the ambulance. I'm looking at the guys. I'm telling them what happened. And the guy says to me, oh, I hope you have what my son had. It will come back tomorrow. You'll be fine tomorrow. Mm. That was the wrong thing to say to me. I believe that guy. I believed I would be normal. And I said, are you taking me to... I forget what I said, Sibley or some hospital. He said, no, we're taking you to Georgetown, a hospital that specializes in brain injuries. So I don't remember going in, but what happened was they put me in an MRI machine right away, and I came out very fast. I said, what happened? He said, you did not have a stroke. You had an AVM. AVM. I had never heard of this. I said, what is that? He said, arterial venal malformation. It is congenital. You've had it since birth, but it was behind the cerebellum. Mm -hmm. The cerebellum is the lower, older part of the brain, and it controls everything. It controls (laughs) your walking, your talking, your balance. Right. So there was some bleeding in that area as a result of this. Arterial venal malformation is when you have veins and arteries, but no capillaries in between. So what happened was the blood is rushing down into the artery and there's no capillaries. So the blood just explodes out. Too much pressure. Yeah, too Mm. much pressure. What actually kicked off the episode? Well, we really don't know. You know, and I think about this sometimes. I think, well, 
did I have symptoms? I had very, very mild, very infrequent, strange walking. Like Some, a lack of balance? Yeah, sort of sometimes yeah. I would take a couple of steps and it would be like kind of weird. But that only happened in the last year or two. Mm. Now, I have been told by a neurologist since this happened, oh, if you had gone to a neurologist and had an MRI and they had seen that this could bleed, they could have done something about it. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if all those things would have happened. I have done research on AVMs since that time and read that if you are born with this in your brain, or it can be anywhere in the body, I have met someone who had an AVM in their spinal cord. Mm. I just met someone who was tested for an AVM in their stomach. Yeah. So arterial venal malformation, they think if it's in your brain and it's congenital, often people who have these have an event in their 20s. Mm. So it was very unusual that I had it late in life at 57. We don't know why it didn't happen when I was younger. I think it had something to do with pressure and maybe high blood pressure. Mm. So if you have high blood pressure, if you have any unusual symptoms, I don't want to scare you, but maybe you should get an MRI. Yeah, talk to somebody for sure. So you're in the hospital, and they've told you the diagnosis, and essentially uh, they need to get your permission to do some fairly adventurous surgery on your brain. A neurologist came into my room and said, oh, we need to take out the AVM in your brain. And I'm the kind of person who would never go to a doctor and never have surgery. And now I'm talking to someone who wants to cut my brain open. And I just laughed. I thought, I'm not going to do this. But I knew nothing about what happened to me. So this happened um, early in May of 2012. I think it was May 4th. And my brother, my oldest brother, I have four siblings. He came from Atlanta probably a couple days later. He met this neurologist and said, Suze, I really like him. I think you should have the AVM taken out. And sometimes I think, oh, I shouldn't have had someone cut my brain for the surgery. However, I already had these symptoms. Right. And I've since asked a neurologist, she confirmed that the symptoms I have now were due to the bleeding that happened immediately of the AVM. Mm -hmm. It was not the surgery. But you approved the surgery. It sounds like they went in and did what they intended to do and what they normally do with this procedure. Yeah. Out of surgery, what I recall you telling me then is that there was a wide range of uh, recovery arc. They wouldn't tell me much because they don't want to promise too much. I was still thinking, hey, I'm going to recover fine. I'll be fine because I'm cool. I'm really healthy, and this shouldn't have happened to me. <laughs> but they didn't tell me what would happen because they didn't know what the recovery would be. They said 
the first month is really hard. They said the first few months you will recover better. And they said it's important that you have speech and physical therapy. Mm -hmm. They said you will recover probably for up to a year or two. However, I've met people who've had strokes in the brain, and they've said, oh, I'm recovering for 25 years, and I have seen recovery in myself. Right. So you went into physical therapy, you went into speech therapy, and I'll just relate that my experience of staying in touch with you and, and seeing you some in D.C. Is, is that you you know, made a consistent progress uh, in speech and mobility. I mean, you were using a walker at first and then a cane and then getting around without all that within three or four months. But what other phases would you say that you went through uh, emotionally because this leads into the topic of our program today, which is an exploration of conflict around disability, internal conflict, conflict in society, conflict between other people. How would you summarize your sort of emotional phases coming out of this experience? They were awful. Emotionally, I had an awful time in the hospital. I don't want to say what happened, but just imagine the worst. And I lost a lot of weight because the food was bad. I didn't want to eat the food. I can remember the guy coming in and saying, well, we're having chicken a la king or something. And I say, do you have any ice cream? <laughs> I would just eat the ice cream. I just, it was awful. I had an awful time. My sister came and finally got me out of the hospital. The last few days in the hospital were so awful. Emotionally, I was really a wreck. And I can remember she came and got me, and I was afraid to get in the ambulance and go home. Why were you afraid? Because I didn't want the ambulance to jostle my brain. Mm -hmm. And she took me out in a cab in D.C. to see the doctor uh, maybe a week later. And the cab ride was awful. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to throw up. I never did. But the speed of the cab was incredible to me. Um, so I have come a long way. Like you said, I'm now walking without a cane. I can talk enough so that people understand me. I really appreciate that I'm doing this program. Mm -hmm. So what you're describing is that your relationship with the world starts to change, really. Yes. You're hypersensitive to things that normally before weren't issues, Riding in a cab, moving, walking, being with people. Yes. I didn't even go to a restaurant for months, and that was a big deal. You know, the other day I had lunch with a friend in a restaurant. I read the whole menu. I went to the restroom by myself. I sat down. It was noisy. I never would have done this right after the AVM. Mm -hmm. So what happened for me was... I got, I started realizing, hey, Suzanne, this really happened to you. And I went through this phase of really being embarrassed to be out in the world. I call it the normal world. 
people who are non-disabled because I was falling over. I had a walker. I looked 80 years old. Nothing against people who were older, but I was 57 and going through this and I'm super fit. So it was really hard to all of a sudden have everything taken away. Yeah. Right. I still feel sad about that. Yeah. So you were describing to me having to go through a mourning period of kind with yourself. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Well, um, I had a meditation teacher who is also a therapist say to me, Suzanne, of course you are upset. You lost the most important person in your life. So when he said that, I realized, oh, I should be grieving. This is like a mourning because I lost the ability to drive. I don't see well. I lost the ability to hike, camp, backpack, make choices about everything I do. You know, I went down the Colorado River in 2010 on a wilderness retreat. I would be afraid to do that now. So I'm really a different person, and I really lost this person who was so important to me. So this person who I thought was really cool, Suzanne Kreider, she was so healthy and so fit and so great. I loved her. She's gone. She will never be back. Mm -hmm. So now I'm learning how to mourn her loss, which I don't know. A friend of mine recently said, he's a therapist too. I said, how long will I be mourning this loss? And he said, I don't know, maybe your whole life. We'll have more coming up with Suzanne Kreider, hearing the question she's been pondering since the arterial venal malformation disabled her in 2012 and compromised her speech and movement. She has some ideas about how the disabled and non-disabled world can get along better, and she'll ask others about that too, attendees at a 2013 disability conference, as well as a professor and researcher who suffered a spinal injury herself has written about these issues. That's all ahead on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all of the episodes in our series dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're looking at how people with disabilities learn to manage the upset and conflict within, and how they handle conflicts they may encounter interacting with others in society. 
Our guide is our own Suzanne Kreider, co-founder of Peace Talks Radio, who's returning from a two-year hiatus following an AVM, an arterial venal malformation in her brain that she had appear suddenly in 2012. The event left her with stroke-like symptoms of compromised speech and movement. Her recovery continues as we talk with her today. She's come up with a list of questions and observations she wants to ask our other guests about later in the program. What I'm trying to answer through this show is some basic questions. What is a disability? Um, not everyone who is disabled look disabled. I don't look disabled until you see me walk. And then you go, oh, no, something's definitely wrong. Mm-hmm. Also, is there a goal for people who are disabled? Should we try to be mainstreamed? Should we try to fit in? I'm also looking at the relationship between what I call disabled versus non-disabled people. So there might be a conflict. There might be a way that we treat people. I want to know about the differences. And also, I want to know how can disabled and non-disabled people make better peace? How can they get along? But I'm so curious. Another question I have is, how do normal people learn about disability? How do they learn how to treat people? who are disabled. To me, the gap is like any gap, you know, and I would like to know how do we rectify that gap? How do we become aware of the gap? What kind of interactions have you had with people that model a empathetic or a gap-closing protocol that feels useful to you? Like, that's how I'd like to be treated. Okay, I have three things I've come up with. Q-A-H. Q is questions. Ask any question you want. I don't care. I will talk about my disability. A is advice. Do not give advice. (laughs) (laughs) I don't need your advice. I'm 57. No, no, I'm 59 years old. I don't need your advice. I've had people tell me, oh, you need to eat this. You need to do this. You need to do acupuncture. You need to do tapping. You need to do um, cranial sacral therapy. I've been told, I've been prayed over. I've had people do all of these crazy things. Don't give me advice, okay? And H is help. Don't give me help. Don't come up and try and make me walk a certain way. Don't hold on to me. Don't give me help. Ask me. Is there anything you want help with? I will say no, okay? What I say to people is, if I am picking up a knife with the pointed end, tell me. If I am going to walk into traffic, tell me. But you would do that with anyone. But anything else, I do not need your help. Mm-hmm. Giving help that is not asked for poor is inappropriate. And then have you asked advice from anybody like uh, therapists or medical people? 
I do ask for advice. Mm -hmm. I say, I even ask my friends. I say, hey, (laughs) what would you do if you were me? Mm -hmm. And my friends love that. They love telling you what they would do. And that is interesting. But they do not have a medical background. Mm -hmm. So I have asked physical therapists, speech therapists, and even doctors. But you know what? They don't know what your life is like. They don't live your life with you. So they have seen people who they have helped in physical therapy. I do want to know about that. But it's not like someone who is with you 24-7. Let me say one thing about empathy. I saw this was a quote from Dan Goleman. He's an emotional intelligence expert who I got to interview. He said there is an empathy gap. And the gap is people with more power tend to listen less to people with less power. I'm upset because I see this happening, that people who are disabled seem to have less power than people who are able-bodied. And I feel like oftentimes, again, this is in my head, but it seems like there is an empathy gap between people who are able-bodied, who have more power and tend to listen less to people with less power who are disabled. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed riding the bus, I often feel great because the bus driver is aware of people who are disabled. It's their job. It is their job. They are aware of people who are elderly. They are aware of people who are slower. So that's interesting to me. What can the rest of us learn from the bus driver then? I don't know if we can learn empathy. So I don't know. Maybe we could learn to slow down, pay attention, ask questions, relax, have fun. Are you trying to relax right now? Um, no. <laughs> so I notice you're, you're sitting like sort of in the classic meditation pose with your hands up and thumb on four fingers. That's so I don't pound with my hands down. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry, I just didn't want to pound. <laughs> but I'm still funny, and so there yeah. are good things that did not get taken away. Mm-hmm. Thank God I'm still funny. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. So, um, okay, yeah, okay, well, I maybe listeners are saying, well, yeah, at least you're alive, and at least you're talking, and at least you have a show. Yeah, these are all great things. I love all that. And to have everything like this taken away so quickly is such a surprise. This I have had a friend say, oh, this is like aging. no. This is not aging, okay? It's not aging. (laughs) Um, So it's having stuff in your life that you had taken away in an instant. It's a bummer. It's a bummer, and it makes you angry sometimes. I'm angry a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
I mean, I know I could meditate, I could take happy pills, I could relax, but there's something about me being me, and I'm just so interested in how I am reacting to this disability without what I call laying on stuff. I'm just me. And yeah, this is a bummer. I'm telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Peace Talks Radio co-founder and show host Suzanne Kreider, who experienced an AVM, an arterial venal malformation, in 2012. The temporary bleeding in her brain left her with some stroke-like symptoms of compromised movement and speech. There's a longer version of my conversation with her online at peacetalksradio.com. She's returning to host today's program after a two-year hiatus. So let's now hear part of Suzanne's interview with Dr. Susan Stuntzner, professor in the Department of Leadership and Counseling at the University of Idaho. Dr. Stuntzner herself suffered a spinal injury when she was 19 and has been a paraplegic using a wheelchair ever since, and teaching and studying about the world of disability. She's author of the book Living with Disability, Finding Peace Amidst the Storm. What does the research say about persons without disability? Do they often have biases and insecurities about people with disabilities? Yes, actually there are um, a lot of biases and insecurities by society and people without disabilities. People without disabilities may see someone who has a disability and then feel uh, threatened. It's, it's kind of like the person becomes a visual reminder of their own mortality, what they call death anxiety. Um, there's others who live without a disability who may try to socially distance themselves from people with disabilities because they're concerned about being socially ostracized by their peers or friends. So that does definitely happen. Talk more about this death anxiety. What is that? Well, I think, you know, because people are mortal, whether you have a disability or not, um, people have their own fears and insecurities. And so when someone who does not have a disability sees someone who does, they might have a conscious or unconscious thought such as, what if that happened to me? Or there's a tendency for people to want to blame the person with the disability because then it gives others reassurance that if they do all the right things, then a disability will never happen. But what people don't realize is that sometimes life just happens. You know, you could make all positive choices and do all the right things according to our societal moral conduct and still have a disability. You have a background of a disability as well as you understand the um, psychological reasoning because you have a counseling degree. So why do some people feel more like, oh my gosh, they feel their mortality more than another person who will not blame the disabled person? Well, I think a part of that comes to the meaning that people ascribe to it. Um, Within our own society, westernized society, people often view living with the disability as a negative thing, something that they would rather avoid or that 
if it occurs, it's almost equated with a death sentence to, to the extreme. But what they don't understand is that many people with a disability um, find positive things that develop in their life because of their disability. For example, um, some people may report that they have a deeper level of friendship or they have found a more meaningful purpose in life or somehow their life has been positively transformed. Okay, so people who cope well have found a way to the other side to, so that their disability becomes a positive transformation. What would you add to this list from your book, which, by the way, I agree with your list, and it's of things that non-disabled people shouldn't do if they want to make peace with disabled people. One of them is offer unwanted help. I hate that. Another is assume disabled people can't do something. And another one is make a disabled person into a superhero. Explain what you mean when you write, don't make a disabled person a superhero. Okay, well, sometimes when you have a disability, people will treat you as your Superman, you know, because you have defied the odds or you have overcome a situation that society or people without disabilities would deem amazing. And so they may say something like, oh, wow, you know, you're just great. I, I don't know how you do that. I could never do that. All right. The catch to this is that many people who I believe are well-meaning individuals who don't have a disability think they're doing something kind by telling you how great you are, okay, and, and how well you're doing. But the harm is that the focus is only on your disability. It's not about, gee, you're wearing really great shoes today, or I really like your outfit. You know, some kind of conversation that would be normal among people who didn't have a disability. More from Dr. Susan Stuntzner from the University of Idaho in our program, Making Peace with Disability, continues here on Peace Talks Radio, right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. See what you can do to help keep our program on the air with a visit to peacetalksradio.com, where you can also delve into our entire archive. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with Suzanne Kreider, who continues her conversation now with Dr. Susan Stuntzner, University of Idaho professor and author of the book Living with Disability, 
finding peace amidst the storm. Susan, explain what passing is. Okay, sometimes people with a disability may uh, feel the need to conceal or act as if they don't have a disability. Okay, so where you may see this is when someone has an invisible condition. Perhaps it's a mental health diagnosis or a learning disability, um, or maybe it's a health condition um, such as cardiac problems that maybe isn't noticeable to the average person. And so rather than have the attention focus on them, and their disability, they will try to act as if it's not there. And so therefore pass as someone who doesn't have a disability. I do that a lot and um, it's really bad, but I walk kind of funny and I try to pass off like I'm walking normally. And I do that because I think I should have as a goal to mainstream back into the non-disabled world that I came from. So what should people do who are disabled instead of passing? Well, I think a better option may be to be forgiving of yourself when you're not able to pass or to pass all the time. Um, Certainly people who have an invisible disability have the option of not disclosing or making their disability noticeable to other people. But when it's visible, um, people may do the best they can to conceal it. And I'm certainly not saying that a person shouldn't try to do that. But I'm also saying that it's important to be okay with who you are and to forgive yourself if you're not able to pass. Sometimes when I'm walking on the street, a really fast driver will come by me and like they're like zooming by me. And inside of me, I get really impatient. And I feel that this is happening because I'm slow and I'm disabled. So honestly, I might yell at the driver. It's really embarrassing, but I do. Should I try to do something instead of yelling? Well, I think you bring up a good point there because I think a part of the ambiguity in uh, coping well with a disability is knowing which battles to address, which battles are important and which ones to let go. Because if we chose to respond or stand up for ourselves every single time we were treated bad, I think we would be emotionally and mentally exhausted. So therefore, I think each person has to decide, is this a big enough injustice um, or inadequate treatment that I need to say or do something and point it out to the other person? How does a person decide that? I I think it's a process. You know, we, we live in a society that expects people with disabilities to cope well and to automatically know how to deal with these interpersonal or external situations that they encounter as a part of society, but yet they're not given enough information or enough resources or enough assistance to 
know what that might look like. And so oftentimes it's a trial and error process. You know, it's, it's somebody uh, trying to stand up for themselves and then decide, well, that didn't work so well. So maybe next time I'll do something else. And certainly as a 19 year old, um, I had a pretty Pollyanna view. I just thought, oh, people really don't mean what they're saying or they don't really mean what they're doing. So I kept forgiving them, which isn't a bad trait, but the harmful side is I, it took me a long time to stand up for myself and to say, it's also important that I honor and be true to myself. What do some of those moments that you refer to look like with other people when you stand up for yourself? Um, okay, well, let's say that a person with a disability is going to college and they have asked for some sort of accommodation which has been denied. That is an opportunity for someone who has a disability to stand up for themselves because certainly that is something that they need to equalize or enhance their learning within a university context. Another way that this might look may be in a personal level, say someone has a disability and their own values or personal boundaries have been crossed. So let's say that someone standing up for themselves may decide to educate this person um, a little bit about their disability, or maybe they'll decide to answer it in a different way. For some people, as we talked about earlier, they will feel comfortable and they will feel it's best to educate others about their disability and that that helps bring peace. For others, that may not be what works for them. So maybe the standing up for them may be to tell this stranger or this person that they don't know something like, I can understand you being curious and I definitely respect that. But you know, this is something that I don't wish to discuss with people I don't know. So someone could say that in a kind, caring, non-offensive manner and beyond, you know, be true to themselves without fully disclosing every bit of information to this person. And so as a person with a disability, sometimes we have to be willing to cut people some slack. But by the same token, we also need to know when our rights have been violated and when it's important to stand up for ourselves. So it's, it's a balancing act. I request that people ask any question you want. And I thought that was a good request to me because it teaches people to ask questions rather than telling me. It also gives me an opportunity to educate people. So what do you feel or what does the research say is the best thing to do to make peace? Well, I think you could ask five different people and probably get five different answers. There will certainly be some individuals such as yourself that feel it works better for them to educate people. And, and in my book, I talk about that, that really what is most important is to find what works for you. Within the research, we know that it helps to have a sense of humor, to not take yourself quite so seriously. 
and so sometimes if something is brought to your attention or say your disability is brought to out in the open if there's a way that you can use that situation in a humorous fashion to put people at ease that tends to work a little bit better I wonder are disabled people trying to fix things and make peace more so than non-disabled people or is it the other way around that too is a good question uh I think society kind of expects people who have a disability to make them comfortable. But, you know, I think what would be best is if both sides or both groups, you know, could take a certain amount of responsibility and do this in collaboration. How can I collaborate? Let's say I have um, different friends. Do I just bring it up and say, let's collaborate on this? Well, I think a good place to start is for people, uh, the better someone with a disability knows themselves, um, the better they can teach others how to treat them. What I do is, uh, with people who I'm friends with, um, I just know and trust that my situation will be talked about eventually, but it doesn't need, it's not the first thing that we talk about. And that's because the people who I've become friends with in my lifetime see me as a person and they want to know me for who I am. Then it may be one month, two months, six months down the road that we have some conversation and they let me bring it up according to whenever I want to. You know, in other words, they don't feel the need to learn about this part about myself until I'm ready to talk about it. If somebody, on the other hand, feels more comfortable in sharing it up front with their friends, then by all means do that. But I think it comes down to how, what each person values and needs for themselves. Dr. Susan Stuntzner, do you feel that support groups for disabled people are helpful or not? I think support groups can be very helpful um, because people don't know what to expect, you know, or they, I think support groups give them a venue or an opportunity to hear other people's experiences. And then when people share their stories, they can say, oh yeah, yeah, I went through that. And so I think when people hear their peers' stories and they hear about strategies that they've tried, that that can be very useful. And that's the value of support groups. I'm so curious how people learn about how to treat disabled people. So is there anything you recommend that we could teach parents or educators on how to interact with people with disabilities? Well, that is a good question. Within the public school system that certainly a lot of learning could happen, you know, within the classroom, teachers, um, administrators, as they got more inclusive and more comfortable with students with disabilities or with um, introducing some of their students to professionals with disabilities so that they learn to see this as a more normalized experience not just as something that happens by chance. 
Um, I think also as parents, you know, certainly parents can learn to treat people with disabilities with respect because children will model after their parents. So that is certainly one way to approach this. You know, another is, you know, just changing the whole societal framework of how we view diversity. I mean, we live in a country where we have mainstream values, but we are known to be a diverse culture. So my question is, why aren't we acting in ways that respect diversity? We're just not all going to look the same, act the same, be the same. And it's the ways in which we're different, you know, that make this a great place to live. Dr. Susan Stunstner, University of Idaho professor and author of Living with Disability, Finding Peace Amidst the Storm. Let's hear more voices and ideas that Suzanne Kreider collected from a 2013 Disabilities Issues Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Dustin Berg from Albuquerque, New Mexico. I'm a T7 paraplegic. I was in a motorcycle wreck in 2003 where um, you know, I barely survived. I broke a whole bunch of bones and my T7 vertebrae, which is roughly in the middle of my back, which caused paralysis. So I use a wheelchair now. You know, everybody, um, whether they're able-bodied or disabled-bodied, uh, they, can, they can focus on a list of things they can do, and that can go on forever. Or they can focus on a list of things they can't do, and that list can go on forever. And it's just which list are you going to focus on? And, and then, you know, for me, that, that was, you know, very big in my accepting my situation. And then, uh, you know, uh, trying to abandon a lot of my fears about my situation and just go on with my life and, and try and pursue um, the opportunities that are available. And, and I realized that, you know, it's definitely not the end of my life and I still very, uh, live a very full and fulfilling life. Uh, you know, I try to look at everybody as, uh, as equal and... Uh, why wouldn't I have peace with people that are able-bodied? I guess would be my question. I mean, they didn't do anything to to deserve any kind of uh, negative energy out of me. You know, they're, a lot of them are very helpful and very caring, and I don't see why we would not have peace, I guess is what I would say. In a Rolling Stone article, Michael J. Fox just said he has Parkinson's, and this is what he said at the end of the article. If I walked into a room with God or Buddha or Bill Gates or Sergey Brin or whoever could figure out a way to fix it for me, I don't think I'd do it. Um, because I wouldn't have gone through what I've gone through and I wouldn't have had the experience I've had. What do you think about that? And would you change this if someone could change it? I mean, that is a really tough question. I understand what he's saying, that you definitely grow as a person. You add tons of character, and you're, you grow mentally in ways that you couldn't have grown without dealing with the experiences you've dealt with. I wish I could go back and walk, but then keep all the experiences, and the, even the hard ones, because they've made me a better person. Man, that's a tough one. You know, I want them both. What do you mean by a better person? I guess I, the, the direction I've taken with my life uh, because of my situation has, 
actually made me um, more beneficial to society because now I take disabled children out and I try and share outdoor experiences with them. I take a bunch of adults out and do different kinds of uh, you know trekking programs and stuff with people in wheelchairs. So I give back more than I probably would have. It's hard to tell though. Who knows what I would have done? But going through what I've been through, it changed what was important to me and, and uh, being a positive piece of society became my number one goal. Hi, my name is Jane Murray. I'm from McIntosh. It's east of the East Mountains. I have PTSD, fibromyalgia, and chronic fatigue. So what is or was the hardest part about being disabled? The fact that my disabilities are not obvious. Um, I'm not missing any limbs. I'm not in a wheelchair. And so I look pretty normal. And that's what people usually say is, but you don't look sick. But there are things, and I would like people to know that not everybody has an obvious handicap, different disability, altered ability, or whatever you want to call it. What do you say to a person who doesn't know you have an altered ability, and they say something stupid? Well, if uh, at all possible, I try to treat them with compassion because they don't know and they're not aware. Um, and if I'm having a really bad day and I know that I will react badly, then I'll walk away. But if I have a chance to educate people, I will. And how do you educate them? What do you do? I just tell them basically the same thing I told you, that some people do not obviously have a disability. So what motivates you to be peaceful in these relationships? If we want to go into quantum physics here, which not many people do, <laughs> we are all one just because we look different, just because our atoms are arranged differently. We are all made of the stuff of the stars, the planet, the earth, the buildings, everything in it. We are all related and we are all connected. And whether we like it or not, um, it, the way we treat others is, is how we are treating ourselves usually. From my experience, you know, I was um, not disabled until 16 months ago. I had a brain problem. And I had this problem of, should I go out and let people see me and maybe get angry? Because I get angry. Mm -hmm. Or should I stay in? So what advice do you have about that? I would say that you might be able to work with the anger as long as you are aware that you are doing it. The Something that's really helps the mindfulness technique of being aware of your actions and being the part of you who is the watcher that watches your body and your ego and your emotions go at it. And you can learn to have a little distance to recognize it and then maybe change. Some, sometimes you can't change your thoughts, but you can change your behaviors. Sometimes that allows you to go out and live in the world because I've learned from personal experience, isolation will make you even crazier. What do you mean isolation makes you even crazier? 
For me, it was thinking I didn't need anybody else or anything, that I was fully self-reliant. All it made was me was crazier and crazier because I was alone all the time with my thoughts, which can tend to be destructive and negative towards myself. Uh, did a lot of self-medication with alcohol, and I've since been sober almost three years now and learned that I do need other people, and there are things that I can learn from other people. I am learning there's different ways of looking at the world that can still be constructive, that there are different ways to do things that will still succeed. You know, it's like Rodney King said years ago, why can't we all just get along? Live and let live. So that would be the advice I have, that most people can't live with other people until they learn to live with themselves. My name is Maria Lisa Gonzalez. I'm originally from Santa Fe, New Mexico. I have CPP, Seville palsy. palsy. Um, I, I was born like, like, like this. The, the, doctor, the doctors said I was not going to make it to, to, to be three. I proved everyone, everyone, everyone wrong. How old are you now? I'm 30. Having a disability doesn't exclude me from anything. People treat me like I'm broken or like I'm mentally retarded or like people call me stupid and I tell them don't call me that because I'm not that. I, I have a mind and and, and, I, and I know how to use it. People that don't know me, they just don't want to get to know me and get, get to know what I'm like. What do you do to make peace with people who do something you don't like? I just not let it let, let it go. People are gonna be people. People, you can't you cannot change change them. When you say you let it go, tell us the steps you go through. Okay, I just did something really dumb to you, or I said something really dumb. Now, what do you actually do? You don't mean to, to say I could you say that. So so. So I, I just let it go. That's, that's me. That's awesome. For longer, complete versions of all of the conversations with all of our guests on this program, check out the Making Peace with Disability episode from May 2014 on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the episodes in our series going back to 2002. That's also where you can learn how to support this work with a tax-deductible contribution. Sign up for a free newsletter, a free podcast, or order CDs of most programs, and find loads of other resources, too. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That helps, too, and we'll keep you up to date. This series stays on the air because of support from people like you and from support by the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is Executive Director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.